This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. We're not picking up the bill for what is a state responsibility. Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. Shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast. Welcome back to the party room. Yes, we're back after a little, little super quick break. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. How are you, Frank? Well, I'm okay. It was a super quick break. We've really only gone for one week. Apologies, everyone, but I got struck down by a horrible, horrible throat lurgy. PKU were taking a well-earned break, as they say in the business. Just one week, something majorly important came back on the agenda, didn't it? Certainly did, and that is constitutional recognition and a voice enshrined in the Constitution for Indigenous Australians. So at the National Press Club last week, Ken Wyde, who's Australia's first Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Australians, outlined his vision for constitutional recognition and a voice to Parliament. I've got to find the common ground that we bring each other to. There are diverse views. It's how do we bring the majority to a common ground that is acceptable, that we could win a referenda with. That's the challenge, but I'm up to that and I'm prepared to walk with people on all sides of politics, all sides of our community to hear their views and reach a point at which we can agree. Sometimes we can aspire to an optimum outcome but we also have to accept that there is a pragmatic element to constitutional referendum. And I would rather us in the psyche of this nation have a win on a referendum than to have a loss. That's the Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt, PK, there, raising hopes and dashing some at the same time, as we now understand it, I think. It is significant on so many levels. He's, of course, the first Indigenous person to also be in this role. The speech was very much also about partnership, the fact that he wanted to co-design everything really in this space. And I think... What's that term mean, PK, co-design? Because it's, <laughs> it's, a particular, it's a particular phrase, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I'm glad you called it out in terms of the jargon involved in it. But I think it is actually important if you boil it down, what does it mean? Mm. Because the idea is that it's not government dictating to Indigenous Australians what should happen, that it's a genuine equal partnership and a, a sort of consensus building process for coming to those those positions, whether it be where you land on constitutional recognition or how you change the close the gap targets mm-hmm. or how you, you deal with um, issues in remote communities, the idea that he won't be a top-down minister, it won't be a top-down government. I think, in essence, that's exactly what should happen. Let's see if it's executed that way. I mean, that's the only way to do it, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's been proven, there's an evidence base that if you do things that way, you're actually more likely to have success because you have the sort of buy-in from the people it affects. It's okay. not an approach which says you do this, we're dictating this. It's a really different way of approaching it. Yeah, and that's exactly the approach Indigenous Australians have been calling for for a long time. But then I feel like after promising that co-design, after promising constitutional change within three years for a start, a referendum, I feel like it took about 15 minutes for the nuance and some of the goodwill of, of the important changes we're talking about to be lost because backbenchers, Craig Kelly, Barnaby Joyce, others, they were up within no time saying a third chamber is not an option. And yet I thought if you were talking co-design, that was the option favoured from Indigenous Australians. Yeah, look, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Ken White did leave open, in my view, I've looked through it again, and I know you have this view too, the possibility that the voice may be set in legislation, but also could be enshrined in 
the Constitution. Now, it being enshrined in the Constitution is largely what Indigenous Australians through the Uluru Statement have called for, isn't it, mm-hmm. Fran? They don't want it just to be a legislated body like ATSIC. They want it to be enshrined in the Constitution. He did actually And leave... presumably the reason they want that is because, you know, ATSIC was once and is no more because a change of government, John Howard, came in and, and scrapped it. So that's the experience of that. That's right. And the advocates of this change, people like Noel Pearson, Megan Davis, uh, Pat Anderson, there are many people, obviously, uh, many, many voices, prominent voices in this area, have said... All the the details actually could be in legislation and changed in Mm -hmm. legislation. So you could have a certain body and then you change that kind of body. All that the Constitution would say is that it should exist, that it has to exist. And then the detail could be decided later. That's the way they deal with that kind of potential scare campaign. But the Prime Minister has really essentially mirrored the position of his predecessor, Malcolm Turnbull, and closed down this option of it being in the Constitution essentially this argument that it would create a third chamber of parliament. I see no evidence myself that it would create a third chamber of parliament. I don't see how that's the case. And you don't have to believe me. Look at what the experts are saying. Well, People I mean, who understand the constitution. to say that, isn't it? I mean, it's not a third chamber that is being asked. Is it? No, I don't think it is a third chamber, but it, it clearly some people in the coalition are very dead set against it being in the Constitution. So the Prime Minister, going back to what will happen here, that's why people Mm -hmm. listen to this podcast, what's going to happen here? Well, only a fool would tell you where this is going to land because this has been going for 10 years. And I've got to say, I've covered it for the whole 10 years. And in this period... I really thought this would be done, dusted by now. So you wouldn't trust me because I really thought it was done. I am genuinely shocked that it's taken this long and that we're still treading water on this. I don't quite see how the Prime Minister closing down the idea of the call for a voice, Indigenous voice of the Parliament being enshrined in the Constitution, that's the that's where I think his position is at, and I've seen that echoed now by Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, how that fits with the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, saying Ken Wyatt will be given all the time and space he needs over the coming year to try and come to a landing place on this that is the agreed constitutional recognition we're after. When Ken Wyatt, the Minister, came out and said these things... This was clearly authorised and discussed with the Prime yeah. Minister and that's why some people have said, did they hang Ken White out to, you know, what, what was going on there? Because clearly there was an agreement about this process. But the Prime Minister, I think, got a bit nervous when all these people came out and sort of denounced it being an enshrined body. The Prime Minister, I think, is quite genuine that he'd like to deliver something. But uh, there's going to be... A reckoning, Fran, because mm. he wants to deliver something, whether it's symbolism in the Constitution in some form that says something um, substantial about the, you know, the the long um, history of indigenous uh, indigenous history in this country. Sixty five, you know, it's amazing how long Indigenous Australians have been on this yeah. land. I mean, that's got land. to be the bottom line. Recognition: the first Australians have been here. That has to be there in some way, doesn't it? It does, but that is not going to be enough to satisfy Indigenous Australians. They're not just going to go through this dance and get some sort of flowery symbolism. What's the point? That's what they tell me. What is the point? They are looking for change. They see this as the voice being about empowering them and giving them a voice. So why would they go through a process... (sighs) 
that didn't actually deliver something. So the Prime so Minister... here we go again. <laughs> well, we sort of, but in terms of like, like, you know, we're going to talk about other things in a minute, but in terms of what this means, I think the Prime Minister's going to have to compromise. I think there may have to be have to be compromise on the other side too, a, another sort of tranche of discussion on where to go. There has to be a landing spot, but... I think that it's not going to be good enough to just say we're just going to say something symbolic and then we mm. can just legislate a body. I just don't think that's going to satisfy enough people. Yeah, well, I think you're right. The goodwill and the intention seems to be there. It's just if they can get to a kind of similar understanding. On another front, federal government put infrastructure on the table. This is in the context of the comments from the Reserve Bank Governor about needing to bring infrastructure forward, getting the economy moving. The government, of course, has promised $100 billion of infrastructure spending in the April budget, but they're also arguing they're going to do their bit, but the states are better placed to bring forward infrastructure building in a hurry. Now, we've heard similar arguments this week too about the issues afflicting the building industry, you know, around combustible cladding and all of that, that, you know, it's the states to move on this, it's the states to fix this. I've got to say, the feedback PK I've had from listeners on the radio this week when we've had interviews with the, with the federal ministers is, oh no, here we go again, it's just the blame game. Is this fair? Yeah, I think that's right. It is the blame game. It's it's your responsibility. No, it's, uh, no, it's, no, it's your responsibility. No, you've got to be a partner here. Uh, we're recording this Thursday morning. There is a meeting um, uh, that's going to be discussing another blame game that's going on at the moment, and that's on cladding. So there is mm. kind of lots in the construction industry going on, and then, of course, general infrastructure and stimulus. And I think... It's fair to say that it's the one thing that people find infuriating uh, voters this is, this kind of buck passing, this it's your problem, it's our problem, whatever. I do think, though, that the federal government is investing. Whether they bring some of that money forward, I think, is going to be a big question because well, they want there's... to deliver this surplus, and that's well... the biggest thing on their agenda. Yeah, there's two things, isn't there? The $100 billion is the 10-year plan. The tr the Treasurer says the in this term of government, or in this forward estimates rather, it'll be $45 billion. That's on the table in the pipeline. It seems to have laid that out for the Reserve Bank Governor. Um, but there are constraints because you can't just build everything all at once quickly. You have to have the plans. They have to be correct. You have to have the engineering correct. You have to have the workforce. So you can't just fast forward all these major projects. But then, as you say, PK, is the other issue here they're desperate to protect the forecast surplus at any cost. So that's why we've got this hedging and fending off from the federal government at the moment. They're talking a big game, but they don't want to commit extra dollars because they're going to do nothing to imperil that forecast surplus. Look, I've spoken to many of them, and I, I know you have too, and they basically said the surplus is non-negotiable. And the reason it's non-negotiable is their view it's a core promise. I mean, that that was mm. kind of what they went to the election saying, we will deliver the first surplus in many years. So that's not something that you renege on. They actually see it as equivalent to an ele election promise broken if they don't deliver a surplus. So yes, they are working fiercely to defend it. And they think that's fair enough, that there's nothing wrong with that because they promised it to the Australian people that they would deliver it. Now, in terms of whether that's a reasonable position to come to, well, we do sort of suggest, don't we, that you know, governments shouldn't break promises, but when economic conditions change substantially and there's a case, well, things change, don't they? So this is the kind of pressure point for the government. On that note, why don't we introduce Sabra Lane? <laughs> 
Sabra Lane, colleague, friend, host of AM on the ABC every morning. Welcome back to the party room. How are you going? Hey, PK. Hey, Fran. How are you both? Terrific. Thank you, Sabra. And Sabra, you are just the girl I need to talk to because I want to ask you right off the top about deeming rates. I know, such a a friendly topic um, because the Treasurer... Josh Frydenberg announced changes this week and they had been long called for and I think it's fair to say long anticipated. We're strengthening the arm of around 1 million welfare recipients, including about 630,000 pensioners. Um, This is about lowering the deeming rates, which will be good for them. So that was the Treasurer announcing the change. Before we get into the sort of weeds of the politics around this, can you, in 20 words or less, talk us through what deeming rates actually are, Sabra? Bear with us, podcasters. Uh, Deeming rates. Deeming assumes that a person's financial investments are earning a certain rate of income, regardless of the amount that they're actually earning. And see, the thing is, is that the government hadn't adjusted that rate since 2015, even though the Reserve Bank of Australia had cut official interest rates five times since then. Uh, that effectively meant that pensioners were feeling they were delivering, or they were helping the government deliver their surplus because um, their rates weren't going down in tandem with the interest rate cut. So they felt that they were hurting because while interest rates were low, their savings weren't racking up as much interest. um, And, you know, they were having to deal with bigger power bills and other things. So they felt that they were pretty much victims here. Now, the government recognised that. Uh, They've cut the rates, so that means that, uh, as you just heard, Josh Frydenberg, uh, those people are going to get more. For some, it'll be $1,000 a year, but still some pensioners, part pensioners, are still pretty unhappy because they think the rate is still too high and not low enough and that they're still uh, being punished, if you like. Look, Labor has argued that the current rate was was shortchanging pensioners and they're still not really happy with the outcome. They've been pretty critical. This is too little, too late. And I am sure that pensioner and retiree groups will say the same thing. What's Labor's take on this? They're saying it's not good enough. Yeah, well, they are saying it's not good enough that people, that, you know, part pensioners are still helping the government um, balance the books, if you like, there. But they're in opposition now. There's not much that they can do other than keep the pressure up on the government. And for the government, this comes after the successful passage of a tax package through Parliament in the last sitting fortnight. So, you know, they've been able to say that they're delivering financial relief to taxpayers, they're delivering financial relief to part pensioners. The government is hoping that this will help stimulate the economy because they're hoping that people are going to spend this money. But it's also sort of thrown some shade on another problem for the government in that it's sort of highlighted one group out there in the community that hasn't had the same sort of respite that others have had, and that's those on the New Start allowance. That's exactly right. It's really rekindled that debate, as it should. I mean, for a long time, we've had a lot of people calling for a rise in, in New Start, and not the usual suspects. Yes, the welfare sector, but also the business peak bodies, economists. We've had senior groups in the last little while because, of course, this is a burgeoning problem. There's 173,000 people over the age of 55 on New Start, and it is not 
a livable amount of money, that is for sure. And we've even had the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, hint, you know, that he believed an increase in Newstart could help boost the economy, though he said that decision wasn't in his hands. So there's been increased calls for it. We've had Mike Freelander, a Labor MP from Western Sydney, the seat of MacArthur, calling for a boost. He says we need to show a bit of guts here. Labor, though, officially, and let's we'll hear from Jim Chalmers here, the Shadow Treasurer, still not quite buying in in the way you might expect, given the door was well and truly open on it. It's for the government to uh, justify uh, why they think that Newstart is adequate as it stands. Uh, we don't think it is in the Labor Party. And the government's not biting. Our focus uh, for the people on Newstart is helping to create the environment where they get a job because that's the best thing you can do for someone who's on Newstart. Why, after all this pressure on the government, why is the government refusing to boost Newstart? Is it just a matter of... They don't want to spend the money because they want to keep their surplus. That goes to a big part of explaining why they don't want it uh, to move because even though it doesn't sound like much, a quick recap here, Newstart, that's about $40 a day. So some groups are pushing for a $75 boost per week for the payment, but that would mean billions more in government payments and that probably this financial year might mean that surplus wouldn't be delivered. Isn't there a $4 billion surplus forecast? I think the increase in Newstart that we're talking about, uh, $75 a week is by the time you strip out the benefits of it, works out to about $2 billion costs. So there'd still be some surplus. Maybe. I mean, even economists say what we're talking about here is a rounding error in the budget. So, I mean, goodness knows. We're recording this Thursday morning. Former Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce says he wants new start to be lifted and a new rate added for people living in regional Areas. That's right. He's put a really interesting caveat on that, saying that that should be factored in, that if you've got an unemployed person living in a country town that's, you know, not part of a big country town, and if they have to uh, travel great distances to go for a job interview, for example, that they should get more money. I wonder whether he would also acknowledge that in some of the big metropolitan areas that rent actually is a lot higher too than what they're paying in uh, country areas and whether those people should be getting a larger amount of new start allowance to, to factor in that. Yeah, that's right. But is there now growing momentum? I mean, Barnaby Joyce is one voice. We haven't heard that many other breakouts. Is there likely no. to be others who, you know, stop well, putting their hands up We've already this? got the Reserve Bank Governor, yeah, the Economist, the well. And this is, sector, it's, been, it's been a rolling issue groups. for years. It's been a rolling issue for years. And if the government hasn't budged now, I, ca- I can't really see how it's going to budge this time either, quite frankly. Look, the other big thing that's happened, which I think has just, again, sparked this conversation, and it's a bit of soul-searching in Labor on how to go forward on this, Australian businessman Dick Smith has called for franking credits <laughs> reform after revealing he was handed $500,000 in cash rebates in a single year. That's half a million dollars. And he was like, what's this? Why am I getting this? Now, I don't want it, he said. Yeah, I don't want it. Wow. Uh, you know, it's sort of <laughs> a bit of an uncomfortable story. Now, the government set up, that's the rules, you know, they've already paid tax on it. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I asked Trent Zimmerman and he was like, nope, it's fair enough that he got this. But Labor is now considering how it moves forward on this. I mean, this issue was a killer for Labor in the election, yet some say look, if we grandfather it, if we do something for existing recipients, we should still reform it. Before the election, Labor was attacked on this policy and they were repeatedly asked whether they would grandfather the changes. And and point blank, uh, when uh, Chris Bowen was the shadow treasurer, he said, 
no. Bill Shorten as leader said no. There is no way then that they would look at grandfathering the provision. But certainly Dick Smith says that Labor didn't sell the, the idea well enough, that it should have introduced some sort of capping on it to apply to high income earners mm. like himself and to protect those on lower incomes. And certainly there are some people within Labor who are arguing that they still should hang on to that policy but do something like that because they say that the cost of that policy into future years is just unsustainable and that something needs to happen. But the coalition ran a very strong campaign against this. They they attacked it as the retiree tax and they're not budging from this position either. So it'll be interesting to see how this does play out. But Sabra, it's obvious that one government sometime soon is going to have to do something about it because the costs are spiralling. I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars, which is why Labor wanted to do it, because they wanted to have that money to spend on promises. You know, and just looking at Dick Smith's single amount, you know, it's a lot of money. It is unsustainable and it's unfair. As you say, Labor was asked through the campaign, why not grandfather it? Why not means test it? Why not cap it at a certain amount that people can get back? And they kept saying no. Why did they do that? Was it simply simply because they wanted the money to fund their promises because they're spooked by last election campaign when their election promises didn't add up, or they just were so confident they were going to win the campaign they thought they could get away with this baggage. Fran, I think it's a bit of both because, I mean, they did have some pretty big spending promises that they did take to the last election and they needed to, to fund it somehow, and this policy was part of that. So that's part of the reason why they they hung on to the policy, yeah, and they didn't want to be spooked. So they're going to have their own soul searching now. They don't have to determine this um, quickly. Let's no, be they honest. don't. And, no. and 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 that and that's you know the pushback that several front benches are making that uh, we lost the election. We're not the government. We shouldn't have to be spelling out. <laughs> yeah. This is their argument. What we're doing right now, uh, the coalitions in government, and the pressure should be on them. There's a blame game going on. Uh, how surprising between the Commonwealth and the states about who is responsible for the cladding crisis gripping the country. Now, Daniel Andrews, he's the Premier of Victoria, has announced a $600 million package aimed at fixing 500 of these buildings that are highest risk. He has called for a national partnership and there's this meeting going on on Thursday morning. He wants the federal government to pitch in half of the cost. We're not picking up the bill for what is a state responsibility. The problems in relation to cladding have been a product of a failure of compliance and enforcement at a state level. That's the message from the Commonwealth and the federal government. We're not going to be an ATM for the states. But where does that get us? Again, I mentioned this earlier when I had the federal minister, Karen Andrews, on the show making that very point. The listeners just went crazy. They just said, oh, this is just the blame game again. Who's going to take a lead here? Yeah, it is the blame game again. And it's unbelievable, actually. This story, it's not like it's just emerged overnight or last week. Uh, this story has been around for months and months, Karen Andrews had said prior to the meeting starting that there had been a basic agreement between the ministers on something to do with cladding. Now, the details of that, we don't know. Mm. Uh, We're probably going to get the answers on that this afternoon. So it won't be a bailout from the federal government. No, and the the cost associated with the rectification is the term they use, getting these combustible cladding off these buildings, it's significant. I mean, people say even $600 million in Victoria is a real uh, underestimate of what's going to cost. So someone's going to have to pay. Is it going to end up being the people who are having their houses built in the future? I spoke to the Queensland uh, housing minister and he said he thinks the developers should pay. And I've got to say, a lot of the listeners were really on board with that. They don't think taxpayers should be paying this bill. That's right, Fran. But also the question 
also comes about insurance and insurance premiums. And this is also an issue that's biting strongly right now because you've got a lot of construction firms saying that they just can't get insurance and that construction is slowing or stopping around the country. So that is yet another issue that these ministers are going to have to come up with some sort of solution today. So much to talk about again next week too. Hey, Sabra, thanks for coming on. You are welcome. And it's time for Question Time, our favourite segment. I think we can both agree on that. Yay. Joel has written in, and it's a lengthy question, but it's worth answering. Since the federal election, the Reserve Bank has slashed growth projections from 3.5% to 1.75% and lowered interest rates twice, with a third drop anticipated. During the election campaign, Philip Lowe stated that he did not want to risk influencing the election by dropping interest rates in the middle of the campaign. Yet I remember Bronwyn Bishop telling Gillian Triggs Q&A that delaying the release of the report until after an election was a political action. So in the context of the the Liberal Party claiming to be better economic managers. To what extent did the Reserve Bank influence the election in favour of the Liberal Party by not revealing the aspect of the perilous state of the economy to the electorate? That's a good question. And there was some discussion about this during the campaign. I I don't recall the Reserve Bank Governor actually saying that he didn't want to influence the election, but it was understood that most economists were tipping that we needed a rate cut, one would be coming. And when it didn't come in the campaign, there was some criticism of the bank for holding off because the bank is meant to be fiercely independent. It shouldn't be really be paying attention to whether we're in a campaign mode or not and whether that's going to help one side of politics or the other. Um, The Gillian Triggs reference... That was Gillian Triggs' kids in detention report, which the government really got stuck into her for only releasing after Labor was out of government. And they thought that was very political. I think they are different. I mean, I'm not going to accuse the Reserve Bank here of being politically influenced. There are a lot of decisions that go into the timing of a rate cut. But did it make a decision in the election? I don't think so. I think Labor made much of the economy being, you know, certainly in the doldrums on some fronts, you know, growth was very low and we didn't need the Reserve Bank to tell us that. Interest rates are already historically low and all the money was on a rate cut coming on. So I personally don't think it made much difference. It just did deprive Labor, I suppose, of one platform to wave around and have a crack at at the government over the economy. We knew the economy was struggling and Labor was making that case regardless. And I don't think we know all the motives for why the Reserve Bank decided not to cut the rate during the campaign either. Another question from Matt in Brisbane. This is quite a long one too. With all the issues arising from the recent raids regarding press freedom, do you think there should be renewed focus on Australia creating a Bill of Rights? As far as I'm aware, Australia is one of the only first world countries that doesn't have a Bill of Rights. John Howard supported one for Iraq but would not support one for Australia. What would be the downsides? One suggestion common is that anything not listed in the Bill of Rights would automatically be excluded as a right. I do not think this would be the case as a Bill of Rights simply prevents overreach legislation, not the legislation of additional rights. Well, I think we do know that there is a limitation in... I'm not going to come out on this show. It's, I don't think it's the role of me as a journalist to tell you I believe in a Bill of Rights or not, but I, I think there is um, a weakness in our system that we don't have some basic things enshrined, like freedom of speech, as we know, is not enshrined as it is in the US, for instance. And and we're having this debate about religious freedoms and trying to, you know, create a, a mm. bill around that. The fact that there are so many competing rights is also a big issue. So I think we are having a moment in this country where we are actually having a bigger discussion about how 
different rights actually can conflict and how do you actually have a community where people feel safe and free but that those competing rights are not always in conflict in in a in a way that I think we're seeing at the moment in a pretty acute way. I think and that's that a bigger issue. And that there is certainty issue. around some basic rights. And in the context of the the raids, of course, some in the absence of a of bill of rights, some are calling for a press freedom act. And I suppose that just highlights, doesn't it, that we don't have that entrenched freedom. You know, we make complications, then rights become um, politically vulnerable to some degree um, because they're contestable, and many in the legal profession, believe a Bill of Rights would be a simpler, stronger protection. I don't think it's realistically on the agenda at the moment. But no, it's I, not. The reason I think it is interesting to mention the Religious Discrimination Act is it is about legislation dealing with another set of, you yep. know, supposed legislation. And it just shows that there are different communities, in this case the religious community, but, you know, the gay and lesbian community, the LGBTI community, the different minority groups that do feel like they don't have the kind of adequate protections. And this is something that we're going to keep having a debate about in our community. Okay. On that note, it's time to say goodbye. We'll be back next week. Don't forget, question time submissions always welcome. Record them if you want. As you just heard, it's quite long for us to read them out. It's lovely if we get another voice, yours, in there. You can tweet them to us, email them to us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. Subscribe, tell a friend, listen. Listen and love us. See you, PK. See you, friend. (laughs) 